Thank all of you for joining us today. Welcome to the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective reading of Anti-Oedipus. I'm going to be semi-host today, moderating. I'm Brooks. Uh, You've got a bunch of the admins and moderators joining us today. We're having a discussion in the discussion chat uh, of uh, himbos and all sorts of non sequiturs around this text. I don't understand what's happening, but that's fine. before we get into the reading, a couple little bits of housekeeping. First off, I want to say thanks to our first three sponsors. Uh, sponsors, I mean Patreons. Uh, we're very close to actually not having the server cost me money every month, which is nice. So uh, thank all three of you. We're trying to figure out how to do rewards and all that. Uh, we'll probably drop names next week, uh, but uh, thank you. And if you want to support what we're doing, uh, the easiest way is to volunteer. We always have needs for more busy clickers, more busy chatters, uh, all of those fun things. But uh, if you want to do more, we've got our zine that we're slowly working on getting out there. Uh, we have editing of these shows. We have a lot more readings. Uh, we have a lot more readings. And let me just say it one more time. We have a lot more readings that we're doing from... Uh, Heidegger, to our literature things, to Simon Den Foucault, our Zizek group, and uh, we're going to be starting uh, probably Friday this week or next, we're going to be starting uh, the Cinema 1 and 2 reading group, uh, Deleuze's Cinema 1 and 2, which is exciting to me because I love those books. Uh, so anything you can do for any of that, we would love to have you join. Uh, so uh, beyond that, uh Anyone else have anything else to announce real quick before we get going into this? Kent, Jack, uh, our readings this week, any further news? Uh, well, Zizek is tomorrow. Uh, oh, that's right. I, sorry, on Wednesday. Oh, okay. And we have our, we have our, anytime we have our uh, calendar up top. Uh, rolling schedule of everything. We're going to be adding in the rest of our talks to that. We're trying to figure out how to schedule them all in. It's a uh, it's a lot of work, to be frank. So we're trying to figure out how best to do that. So we're going to be tossing out a few options. Uh, but uh, Zizek is a little bit later this week. Tomorrow is our review. And then we have our literature discussion, I believe, Saturday, Jack? That's correct. Saturday at noon PDT in Simondon. Uh, Sunday at, I believe, 11 a.m. PDT. Excellent. And the Zizek group, uh, please do join. We're trying to uh, get it all going. Everything's going to be on this server. We're setting them all up. So uh, if you head up to, uh, uh, I believe we called it Join a Reading, Little Room, uh, feel free to just click on one of those other tabs. Uh, You'll see the little emojis, and uh, those emojis will grant you access to the different groups, uh, which is great. So uh, as we get going, uh, we're going to be adding a lot more readings. And as there's more demand, uh, that's where we need more help. So don't hesitate to, uh, yeah, uh, don't hesitate to add, to say where you can help. Uh, but today we are going to continue reading uh, through Chapter 3. Uh, we're on Section 2, the Primitive Territorial Machine. As always, we're going to be... Uh, reading through everything, and then we'll do a little bits of analysis as we make our way through. Uh, Join us in the discussion chat live. Type away. We will be answering questions and commenting. And if you have something to say, uh, most of you are unmuted. Uh, If you are not unmuted, uh, feel free to sort of raise your hand in discussion chat live and say you have something interesting to say. We would love to uh, have that conversation. Uh, But for now, I'm going to go ahead and jump in, and we're going to begin The Primitive Territorial Machine. 
<clears throat> the notion of territoriality merely appears ambiguous. For it, if it is taken to mean a principle of residence or of geographic distribution, it is obvious that the primitive social machine is not territorial. Only the apparatus of the state will be territorial in this sense, because, following Engels' formula, it subdivides not the people, but the territory, and substitutes a geographic organization for the organization of gens. Gens? Gens? That's, someone's going to have to answer that for me. Yet even where kinship seems to predominate over the earth, it is not difficult to show the importance of local ties. This is because the primitive machine subdivides the people, but does so on an indivisible earth where the connective, disjunctive, and conjunctive relations of each section are inscribed along with other relations. Thus, for example, the coexistence of the coexistence or complementarity of the section chief and the guardian of the earth. Oh, Gens is French for people. That's good to know. When the division extends to the earth itself, by virtue of an administration that is landed and residential, this cannot be regarded as a promotion of territoriality. On the contrary, it is rather the effect of the first great movement of deterritorialization on the primitive communes. The imminent unity of the earth as the immobile motor gives way to a transcendent unity of an altogether different nature, the unity of the state. The full body is no longer that of the earth. It is the full body of the despot, the unengendered, which now takes charge of the fertility of the soil as well as the rain from the sky and the general appropriation of productive forces. Hence the savage, primitive socius, was indeed the only territorial machine in the strict sense of the term. And the functioning of such a machine consists in the following. The declension of alliance and filiation, declining the lineages on the body of the earth before there is a state. So this, this section opens up really clearly talking about, uh, obviously, the origin of the sort of body without organs and the original body. Opening up on the savage, the primi primitive territorial machine, uh, the story of the earth, how savages regarded it, and the use of the term savages, uh, pretty liberally in here, which I'm not necessarily super comfortable with. It's just the text. Uh, feel free to tell me how else I should reference that. Um, but it's just opening up about the first sort of moments of when we move beyond just the earth into the despot, uh, feudal, the next time period beyond that. That's uh, how I feel. Beh for behind the scenes is The Savage Mind by Levi Strauss. Mm -hmm. Is that around the same, that's the same time frame? I believe so. Yeah, it is. Oh, and it was such an influ influential book when it landed, too. Yeah. I'm not a fan, personally. Yeah, unfortunately, that does seem to be um, something we're still dealing with today, is um, moving out of the whole idea of, like, civilization contra savages, right? So as to, like, kind of say... Oh, look how far we've come. Look at who we were. So I, I do agree with the problem problematic there. And it, it's nice, too, because I think Deleuze is going to try and try and speak, uh, or rather Deleuze and Guattari will try to speak to that problem a little bit more. But uh, one comment I wanted to make, aside from the, the savage and the civil, is I, I like the point that they're making, too, that 
um, the socius and the territoriality machine uh, are not to be understood as the state or uh, as the government, right? Is even though the government does subdivide physical territory, that doesn't seem to be what the socius does. It's not um, subdividing physical territory any more than the socius is a central authority or government. Well, and I think a lot of the references uh, to Kent's point, uh, and it's been forever since I've been to Savage Mind and cared about Levi Strauss. Um, it seems like that's very much what they're talking about when they say things like, uh, where's the where's the word? Um, uh, the full body is no longer that of the earth. The, the concept of the savage mind is that of uh, the unta- untamed mind. Untamed mind might be a better... Uh, uh, uncontained, unconstrained mind, the, the, the savage mind feels like uh, it, if someone's more familiar with the text, I'd love a semi sort of refresher on it or a summary if anyone's super familiar. Well, the idea of the, uh, you know, Levi Strauss was an anthropologist. He studied mythology and he basically had the idea that the uh, primitive peoples organize things differently than, uh, you know, uh, more advanced peoples. And uh, this is where famously he has the idea of the bricolure um, as as a person who uh, puts things together that already exist rather than uh, engineers them and creates them from scratch. And... um, and so he he's basically saying that in that process of um, of bricolage, that there is a uh, uh, the, these underlying structures become uh, apparent. Uh, for instance, in the way that uh, um, villages are laid out, the layout of villages and how the those layouts are perceived by the different villagers and in kinship and in mythology. What are the chances? Because like chat's saying, um, they're one of the things they do very often. They did in the last uh, entire chapter, in basically every reference to Lacan or to Freud, there's an edge of uh, sardonic wit where they're almost mocking them inside of that. Uh, is this a little bit of uh, that sort of mocking joke about Levi Strauss? Levi Strauss at the same time. Um. I don't know. I haven't sensed that. All right. Well, maybe we'll get there. Um, but 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 the thing is that uh, Levi Strauss's structuralism, uh, and then the semiotics of De Saussure, uh, that is the whole basis on which Lacan built uh, his theory. So right. um, Lacan was uh, very responsive to those new innovations that were coming in at that time in the early sixties. And uh, and so uh, Deleuze and Guattari are responding to Lacan's response. Yeah, and to the point, it may be worth um, walking out more of this section to understand that um, that development they're making. So we're talking about the notion of territorialization, right, and the territory, the primitive territorial machine. So if territorialization is not geographic-based, what is it? 
again for me. Sorry, I, I don't under, I understand the question. Could you explain? Yeah, so when there's I'm basically I'm I'm trying to start a conversation around the subject of territorialization, right? It seems to me Deleuze and Guattari are saying uh, territorialization is not purely geographical. Uh, they're developing an understanding of uh, territorialization that's different from that. Oh, okay, but but here in the primitive, it is just geographical. Right, but they uh, they write. For it is taken to mean a principle of residence or of geographic distribution. It is obvious that the primitive social machine is not territorial. So, right, like, like you said, if yeah, they're... Yeah, okay, so, uh, yeah, I don't understand that. Maybe the better way to ask it then is, what did Deleuze and Guattari mean when they say territorial or territorizing? I think you might describe it as like a, a, an absence of an absence of cultural technique, right? That there's a kind of imminent relate, an imminent semiotic relationship between world and people that that just that hasn't been it sort of hasn't undergone a kind of organization around a kind of universalization of people via cultural technique. Oh, I really, I really like that. Could you expand on that for a moment? I really liked. I, I think I'm starting again. I, I'm not sure I fully grasp what you're saying, but I liked where you started. Please do it again. Uh, so, I mean, here I'm relying on um, cultural technique from German media theory, right? The idea that, like, when you start to lay out property lines and you start to grid out territories, there's a kind of, I don't know, it's a kind of, it's a cognitive operation that is reorganizing people into populations to some degree. Uh, and one assumes that it would sort of be happening through the through the despotic signifier, whereas in a primitive in the primitive territorial machine, you basically just have a direct relationship. To, you are basically earthly figure, earthly earthly social creatures, or something like that. In the sense that you are you're just marked by the earth directly via ritual and tattooing and things like that. And it's it seems to be more distributed in some way where there's no territorializing consciousness that might arise from a kind of again from a kind of some in prototypical gesture to a universal subject. As they quote, uh, the eminent unity of the earth as the immobile, mo the immobile motor gives way to the transcendent unity of an altogether different nature, the unity of the state. The full body is no longer that of the earth. It is the full body of the despot as they make that move. Yeah, that's basically, that's basically where I'm sort of hooking mm. cultural techniques onto that. Maybe maybe it has to do with the fact that nomadism is the uh, is the base state. It's not territorial in the sense that uh, no nomadism is the is the the fundamental state that the, that the primitive is at. Yes, because they're on the ultimately. Uh, the territorialized earth at that point, the surface at that point is so grand and massive that uh, there is no there is no division. The closest they get, as they describe, is uh, the subdivision of man may be happening, but it's uh, over an undivided earth. And it, it's kind of interesting because, uh, you know, this territoriality is a mammalian thing. And um, but it's it's. It's unclear whether humans have that territoriality. You know, maybe private property is like territoriality for humans. I don't know. 
Possibly. I would even like to read the next paragraph, which I think gets into some of these very specific cases. Jack, how about you? Hmm. Well, maybe I will then. If declension characterizes the primitive machine, it is because it is not possible simply to deduce alliance from filiation, the alliances from the filiative lines. It would be erroneous to ascribe to alliance no more than an individuating power over the persons of a lineage. It produces instead a generalized distinguishability. E.R. Leach cites cases of very diverse matrimonial regimes where no difference in filiation can be inferred among the corresponding groups. In many analyses, the stress has been upon ties within the unilineal corporation or between different corporations linked by ties of common descent. The structural ties deriving from marriage between members of different corporations have been largely ignored or else assimilated into the all-important descent concept. Thus, Fortes, while recognizing that ties of affinity have comparable importance to ties of descent, disguises the former under his expression, complementary filiation. The essence of this concept, which resembles the Roman distinction between agnation and cognation, is that any ego is related to the kinsman of his two parents because he is the descendant of both parents, and not because his parents were married. However, the cross ties linking the different patrilineages laterally are not felt by the people themselves to be of the nature of descent. The continuity of the structure vertically through time is adequately expressed through the agnatic transmission of a patrilineage name. But the continuity of the structure laterally is not so expressed. Instead, it is maintained by a continuing chain of debt relationship of an economic kind. It is the existence of these outstanding debts which assert the continuation of an affinial, affinal relationship. Genuinely, this, this entire uh, paragraph might as well be nonsense to me. So, so they're diving in here into uh, the whole problem of the structures of kinship. And uh, this guy, E.R. Leach, was the major um, uh, person in English who took up structuralism and, and, and did a lot of work on, on structuralism after Levi-Strauss. And uh, and his work is very interesting because it 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 kind of clarifies some issues that uh, remain unclear in Levi Strauss's work. But um, I have forgotten the term that they have for these groups. But there are these um, kinship groups where you, you know you can't marry in a, a from the other group. Uh, I wish I could remember the term, but but anyway, the 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 in, within this kinship organization, there is a problem of these um, these these uh, these kinship groups that don't allow marriage. So that if if you have these two groups within a, a village, say they won't marry from each other, and 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 so there became a whole problem of how these groupings arose to create these structure, these kinship structures. And so that's what they're referring to here. I'm going to just ask, what does declension mean in this context? Because it is, uh, and I spent some time during my read yesterday, spending some time on 
Google trying to figure out what the hell they actually mean by declension. And I'm going to assume we wish we had some French speakers here with the original text because it feels like uh, it it it's so specific, but it's not something we use in English anymore. Like it's just not a word we use and haven't for a very long time. Uh, well, well, it's a grammatical term, but I don't think it it means something different in this context, and I have no idea what that is. So I've spent some time thinking about this. By the way, hello. Sorry, my Wi-Fi dropped out. I did sp- I spend some time thinking about this one because I, I struggled too. And I think actually um, L.A. the Mason's response really gets into it because we're talking about territorialization in the sense of like the way that um, – sort of semiotic chains and that seem to fall on uh, bodies and earths, right? Uh, Deleuze and Guadi, right? This is because the primitive machine subdivides the people, but does so on an indivisible earth where the connection, disjunctive and conjunctive relations of each section are inscribed along with the other relations. Thus, for example, the coexistence or complementarity of the section chief and the guardian of the earth where like the section chief and the guardian of the earth relate to sort of like, not just like uh, subjectivities in that, but sort of roles, right? So I think when they're talking about declension and they're going to get into the agony and the cognate, they're talking about the way that um, sort of meanings get territorialized and mapped onto um, people and uh, uh, bodies, right? Or, or objects and that. Okay, but in in this, and we're gonna, I'm gonna want to spend a little bit of time on this because um, this paragraph right here basically is almost a thesis level for the rest of this section because they refer back to a lot of the terms in here that I simply don't have the ability to really parse. Uh, if declension characterizes the primitive machine, it is because it is not possible to simply deduce alliance from filiation, the alliances from the filiative lines. Uh, so uh, declension as a concept uh, itself is the way things change over time. Uh, generally, it's used in almost, a, my understanding, uh, it's almost a negative connotation of, of breakdown. A declension is a breakdown, uh, uh, dis, dis, dissemination in a negative way, whatever it may be. Um, and so if we talk about... Uh, if declension, the concept of things uh, disseminating in a negative way, changing over time, uh, characterizes the primitive machine, it is because it is not possible simply to deduce uh, alliance from filiation, which means the people that I am, uh, I am in this with my my clan, my group, all of that, simply from family lineage. Is that what that means as a sentence? Yeah, that's about my take on it because their alliance seems to me to be like people coming together more by choice, whereas filiation is more by blood. Uh, blood meaning like um, you know, f- filia being like a like a brother or a right. sister or like a family. So this this paragraph is essentially talking about uh, again to and I'm going to continue asking these questions because I really want to understand this and I'm sure I'm not alone. Um, this paragraph is talking about the structural nature of pre-modern or pre 
despot societies, uh, the the uh, savage societies, uh, and how at the time of this savage world, how their alliances were formed, how I chose what groups I was part of, and those things, and how we were able to spot it. I I think so, and in that sense, we're talking about we're talking about what you just said in terms of uh, territorializing, right? So the way that uh, you know, like coding, and that happens in terms of like uh, alliance and um, blood relations. Okay, and so they're talking about in this pre-despot society. Uh, uh, Fortes, while recognizing that ties of affinity have comparable importance to ties of descent, uh, the people I want to be around versus the people I have to be around, disguises the people I want to be around under complementary affiliation. The essence of this concept, which resembles the Roman distinction between Ignatian and Cognation, is that, and this is a this is a big question I have, any ego is related to the kinsman of his two parents because he is the descendant of both parents and not because his parents were married. Uh, Ego here is capitalized, which to me raises a gigantic question of what they mean actually by ego. Uh, do they mean any singular person inside of this? Any what? What could they mean by that? It's capitalized, which is confusing as shit to me. I, I, I think that's just an accident of the translation. Okay. okay. But, but 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 the the word the word that I was uh, searching for was moiety. I put it in the chat. Moiety. Right. So so yeah, yeah. the so the thing is that there there are these kind of uh, irrational exclusions within kinship systems, which where there's moieties that you have to you have to um, you have to marry out of them. So you can't marry anyone within your moiety or vice versa. So I think that that is kind of like the central problem that they're um, they're talking about in this paragraph. It's a it was a theoretical problem in kinship groups, and they're diving right into it. Okay. So when they're using the term here, ego, they're not necessarily referring to, uh, as the chat was asking earlier, is this the Freudian version of ego inside of it, but instead uh, uh, how a, uh, this, I'm not, I hate using the word savage, I hate using the word savage, but I'm just going to use it because that's what they're talking about here, uh, that uh, any ego is related to the kinsman of his two parents. They're not talking about ego in the Freudian sense, they're talking about a sort of a singular uh, standalone person. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, and that's why they capitalize it, because they're using it. I mean, it's an awkward translation. Such an awkward translation. I, I read it a little differently in the sense that it's, it's capitalized because they're referring, to the, they're referring to a notion of ego at large, which is to say, like, um, you know, if it is Freudian, we're not necessarily concerned with the id here. We're concerned with that that principle of the uncon or that part of the unconscious that regulates reality and, and pleasure um, being derived or inherited from I believe it was uh, yeah being derived or inherited from um, your parents. Hmm. 
So, so the end of this chapter that focuses on uh, the cross ties linking different patrilineages are not felt by people themselves to be the nature of descent. Uh, the continuity of the structure vertically through time is adequately expressed in the agnatic transmission of a patrilineage name. Uh, uh, it sounds like a high schooler who got a hold of a thesaurus. This is um, sim to simplify. Uh, the ability for me to see where I come from in the groups that I belong to, uh, there is a level where it's who I choose to be around, and then there's who I'm directly connected to. Uh, talking about ultimately how social production exists inside of the uh, sort of the savage uh, time frame, the pre-setup. Hmm? Well, okay. So, so the 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 thing I think that is the basic thing to be aware of is that kinship groups are complicated in primitive society. So there's a lot of extra terms within. The structure of kinship groups, and and this was a big part of structuralism uh, to uh, to try to disentangle those those various uh, kinship structures and try to see uh, you know uh, how they're formed and uh, and try to understand kinship as a uh, you know as a science. So there's a lot of technical terms associated with it. Right, that's fair. Uh, it's it's uh, it's 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 the the need to basically have a degree in anthropology in order to read a single paragraph of this book just frustrates my mind basically um, because a lot of this is is just outside of my grasp to be able to really understand how it applies directly. Uh, ultimately, what we're talking about here is the way pre-modern societies or pre uh, not pre-feudal societies. Uh, dealt with filiation and, and descendants, and where they how they attached and how they were part of different groups versus the despot, despotic times where we very much attached ourselves to. I'm French. I'm with these people. This is my king. This is who I'm, and that's the people I'm with. I mean, that's the short version. Not to fast forward at all. Well, well, you have tribes, you have clans, you have these moieties within the clans. Yes. So in um, primitive society, that's a very complex structure. Just like, for instance, uh, one of the things they found out in linguistics was that primitive languages are more complex than uh, modern languages as well. Well, and Lou uh, uh, copied and pasted it in the chat from Holland, which this is actually really worth reading because we're going over this. Uh, the central function of Chapter 3 of Anti-Oedipus is to historicize social production's repression of desiring production, to show that Oedipus is the specifically capitalist mode of such repression by contrasting it with other modes. The account which Deleuze and Guattari provide of three modes of social production, savagery, despotism, capitalism, is best understood not as a history of modes of social production, oh, that's my mistake then, but as genealogy of the Oedipus. Genealogy in the sense of the term Foucault derives from Nietzsche is based on the premise that historical institutions and other features of historical organization evolve not smoothly and continuously, gradually developing their potential through time, but discontinuously and must be understood in terms of difference rather than, dis rather than continuity. As one social form formation appropriates and abruptly reconfigures an older institution or revives various features of extant social organization by selectively recombining them to suit its own purpose. As Luz and Guadri put it, the events that restore a thing to life in a given form of social organization are not the same as those that gave rise to it in the first place. The Oedipus did not arise at the dawn of civilization and evolve smoothly. 
The third chapter of Anti-Oedipus shows, on the contrary, that the modern Oedipus was cobbled together out of elements from previous social formations, which we're starting with now. I like that a lot. That helps uh, me understand that paragraph. Would anyone like to read the next one? Hopefully understand it better than I'm doing. Now that my Wi-Fi is working, I, I, I can take you up on volunteering. Excellent. Sounds great, Jack. <laughs> cool. Violation is administrative and hierarchical, but alliance is political and economic, and expresses power insofar as it is not fused with the hierarchy and cannot be deduced from it, and the economy insofar as it is not identical with administration. Filiation and alliance are like the two forms of primitive capital, Fitz capital or filiative stock, and circulating capital or mobile blots of debt. There are two memories that correspond to them, the one biofiliative, the other a memory of alliance and of words. With, while production is recorded in the network of filiative disjunctions on the socius, the connections of labor still must detach themselves from the productive process and pass into the element of recording that appropriates them for itself as quasi-cause. But it can accomplish this only by reclaiming the connective regime for its own, in the form of an affinial tie or pairing of persons that is compatible with the disjunctions of filiation. It is in this sense that the economy goes by way of alliance. In the production of children, the child is inscribed in relation to, this, to the disjunctive lines of its father or mother. But inversely, the disjunctive lines inscribe it only through a connection represented by the marriage of the father and the mother. At no time, therefore, does alliance derive from filiation, but both form an essentially open cycle where the socius acts on production, but also where production reacts on the socius. I think one thing, you know, that we should keep in line uh, mind is that there's matrilineal as well as patrilineal uh, forms of forms of affiliation. Uh, they do seem to actually not give necessarily patrilineal or matrilineal uh, preference. I mean, they talk about affiliation, uh, marriage of the mother or the father. They talk about both pretty openly, actually. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I'm just trying to to say that the ground state isn't necessarily patri patriarch. Okay, and that would fit into talking about too how like um, the society we're discussing right now and the social machine and territorializing relative to the society is not quite like the Oedipalized society we're, we've been uh, discussing or we're at least used to in um, contemporary times. Well, and again, to what uh, Holland was talking about, that uh, these things don't blend nicely, continuously out of each other, that, oh, it's always been the case that, uh, you know, the, the father represents the law and is the one in charge and the mother's the caregiver, that it's actually, and it's what Holland said, that these things happen disjointedly uh, and are sort of cobbled together with a lot of different things and happen suddenly rewriting their past. And that's a big focus of this one. Uh, uh, the ability for production to be recorded inside of this and how it's recorded 
uh, on the disjunction of the socius, uh, I think applies directly to that. Hmm. Yeah, and, and I looked up what agonate versus cognate means. I'm getting this from a site called Wikidiff. So there is probably some risk on this one, but it looks like um, as nouns, the difference between, and I'm quoting now, as nouns, the difference between agonate and cognate is that agonate is a relative whose relation is traced only through male members of the family, while cognate is one of a number of things allied in origin or nature. Yet as adjectives, the difference between agonate and cognate is that agonate is related to someone by male connections or on the paternal side of the family, while cognate is allied by blood, kindred by birth, specifically legal, related on the mother's side. See, I, I, think, the, I think the key uh, in this paragraph is this uh, sentence that says filial, filiation and alliance are like two forms of primitive capital. You know, fixed capital or filative stock and circulating capital or mobile blocks of debt. So another thing to be aware of is that in uh, these kind of uh, uh, primitive societies, there's uh, they, they were gift societies for, for the most part. And... Um, and so the, 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 you know, archetypal form of that is in the Trobrian Islands. And uh, I think it was Malinowski that studied that. And, uh, and so from island to island, they would have these gifts that would circulate. And, um, and so then the, the economic activity kind of followed the circulation of the gifts. And they had certain gifts that, 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 uh, circulated in a in a clockwise direction and other gifts that circulated in a counterclockwise direction and so the 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 gift giving was the thing that set up the uh the the uh you know the 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 basis for trade so the the important thing was the gift giving but in the wake of that then they did trade between the islands and the trade went clockwise and counterclockwise in a very kind of systematic way. Um, and, and, but, but all that gift-giving structure is based on uh, kinship structures. And so, and so it's a very complex system of, uh, of, uh, of exchange that was occurring, you know, in these primitive, in, in this, these primitive societies where, where you, you really only had barter as the uh, the basis for economic activity. Yeah, and I think they're going to expand on that more when they get um, further into uh, things like gift giving. But um, because you mentioned that sentence about affiliation alliance compared to Fitz capital and circulating capital, I think too it's important to look that right. They're talking about Fitz capital is almost something is corresponding to a memory of the biofiliative, right? So like that's really interesting because they're talking about Fitz capital or like um, at some level, uh, I, I think of Fitz capital in an economic sense as machines, um, uh, institutions and, and, you know, larger apparatuses um, as being related to biology or, or at least life being uh, the prefix bio in contrast to a memory 
um, of alliance and of words, which is compared to circulating capital. Here we go, circulating capital or mobile blocks of debt, which is a memory of like signification, right, or words um, and, and of alliance. So it seems too that there's a, a difference between how we relate to one another in terms of like what we're connecting with, um, as a as it's going to be either through a sort of um, a, a sort of shared living or shared relationships through the through blood, versus through um, something more like debt, where it's the memory of um, of what was spoken that really um, we we fall back on. Right. In a gift uh, society, there's um, guest host relationships. And so, uh, you know, this this uh, alliance part could be a reference to those guest host relationships that were very important. Um, I'd love to spend a moment on the last sentence of that of that paragraph. Um, At no time. Does alliance derive from filiation, but both form an essentially open cycle where the socius acts on production, but also where production reacts on the socius? Feels like a very unique thing as they talk about the genealogy of the socius and all these things and how they've happened. That last part, uh, unless I've been wrong, uh, the socius doesn't necessarily act on production, but production reacts on the socius seems unique to this the way that they've been talking about these things. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I mean, one, one of the things I think we should uh, focus on here is their use of the term quasi-cause. I'm not sure that they mentioned that before, but uh, quasi-cause is a big deal in Deleuze's own earlier, the earlier work. And uh, basically quasi-causes are like side effects. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's it's like uh, correlations rather than causation. That's a that's a really good way of putting it. Yes, and they they talk he talks about that in all of his earlier works. It's actually not very much in this in this book, is it? Yeah, but but you see, the thing is that if you, it, I mean, so I'm interpreting this paragraph, you know, not quite understanding it completely, like you, but. Um, I'm interpreting it like like if you think of the Trobriand Island case where you have the gift giving in one direction and then the counter gift giving in the other direction and you have these two flows that are both circles but but in different directions and then the the uh, economic activity is following in the uh, in the kind of trail of that uh, you could see that there's a, like a quasi cause relationship between the two cycles perhaps. Yes. So to talk about what quasi cause means, because uh, it's such an interesting one, it follows in in my understanding uh, Deleuze's uh, definition of the virtual. Uh, the virtual is uh, above layer above the material. The material world interacts. The way that those material things interact makes is makes things that are virtual. They don't actually exist. They're just existing only in the interactions of those. And uh, quasi causes almost one more layer removed, where it's the interactions of the virtual, uh, uh, these these things that are effects of the material, when they interact, those are quasi cause uh, moment. Those are quasi cause effects. 
Uh, so it's an it's another layer sort of virtualized of the virtual. And it's interesting that they use it here because it's uh, because they're they're talking about so many of these things at a deeply material level. So to be like multiple layers removed now is interesting. Yeah, and if you walk that back to like, because um, we're trying to understand that concluding sentence, if we look at the topic sentence, affiliation is, I'm sorry, affiliation is administrative and hierarchical, but alliance is political and economic and expresses power insofar as it is not fused with the hierarchy and cannot be deduced from it, and the economy insofar as it is not identical with administration. So we are actually talking about um, the the formal orga- uh, economic and the economic organization and power structures in the society, right? Um, and the sort of territorializing that these um, these structures take uh, kind of undertake. Right, so affiliation is administrative and hierarchical. Uh, you know, this sounds to me kind of like the idea that, right, the the prince uh, follows the the king and all that, uh, or like you know you do what you're, you kind of like carry on what your father did. So like if your pops is a blacksmith, this isn't a great example. I should probably not use like the, the Middle Ages, but maybe something more like. Um, you know, if your pops is a good hunter, you're supposed to kind of take on um, managing hunting or, you know, these kind of older notions of uh, administrative and uh, hierarchical understanding of yourself in the society, as opposed to alliance where you're developing political and economic relationships and you're um, sort of engaging in a different way of, um, in a different territorialization, right? whereby you're, you're dealing with um, how to engage politically with things and how to sort of economically engage with them, which seems to speak to the level of uh, that last sentence we were talking about um, of this section, where we're talking about uh, alliance not deriving from filiation, but both forming an essentially open cycle with socius acts on production, but also where production reacts on the socius, where they have a uh, right, production has a reflexive relationship with the socios. Yeah, so they're implying that the socius is filial and the production is uh, uh, an alliance. But 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 so so but the big picture here is that Marxism has a hard time dealing with um, this whole uh, gift-giving structure in prehistory that was not primarily economic. Yeah, be careful. The next sentence seems to respond to that, because otherwise I would probably agree with you. But Because uh, the next sentence is, Marxists are right to remind us that if kinship is dominant in primitive society, it is determined as dominant by economic and political factors meaning uh, alliance. Right, but it's not the whole story. That's... Okay. I am on mute. That is good to know. Um, the last the last sentence, I'd, I'd like to sort of put out how I'm reading it now. And if we take the con- that first part, at no time, therefore, does alliance drive from filiation, but actually that alliance, uh, they form an open cycle where one acts on the other and then the other acts on the other. So that... 
alliance does drive filiation, but also filiation drives alliance. It's part of a, a, a cooperative cycle that goes back and forth, one driving the other, but at no point is one necessarily the one that is ultimately driving it completely. Uh, which seems to be the the push for the last two or three paragraphs that I have not been able to fully understand. Uh, but he seems to be talking in response to a few people that he cites here uh, that are very much pushing the idea that filiation is what drove pre-modern times, the savage times, that um, that these alliances were drove, driven primarily by who had what kids and how those things worked out. And he's saying, no, it was a cycle of alliance uh, that didn't necessarily derive from affiliation or affiliation from alliance, but that they actually uh, reacted upon each other. Yeah, I think we're definitely getting somewhere because right, we're trying to understand how the social or the socius um, in this society territorializes, right? And so they write, while production is recorded in the network of affiliated disjunctions on the socius, the connections of labor still must attach themselves from the productive process and pass into the element of recording that appropriates them for itself as quasi-gods. So I, I think you're right to point out the open cycle um, aspect of this. Uh, the, the production of children, I think, is like probably the best example they're giving right now, where the child is inscribed during production in relation to the disjunctive lines of its father or mother. But inversely, the disjunctive lines inscribe it only through a connection represented by the marriage of the father and the mother. So, right, like, there's an alliance of the father and mother, but there's also the um, the sort of, like, either or it must be the father or mother's um, uh, production of the child, right? Which sounds like it's more, like, affiliative in the sense that, like, you're trying to understand who should administrate the child um, productively. All right. Well, would anyone like to read the next paragraph? I think it's a good idea to move on a little bit here because I think uh, we've already started reading the next paragraph. Anyone? All right. I'll give it a shot. Marxists are right to remind us that if kinship is dominant in primitive society, it is determined as dominant by economic and political factors. And if filiation expresses what is dominant while being itself determined, alliance expresses what is determinant, or rather the return of the determinant in the determinant system of dominance. <laughs> Christ. <laughs> um, that is why it is essential to take into consideration how ties of alliance combine concretely with relations of filiation on a given territorial surface. Leach concretely, Leach has specifically underscored the importance of local lineages insofar as they are differentiated from lineages of filiation and insofar as they operate at the level of small segments. It is these groups of men residing in the same area or in neighboring areas who arrange marriages and shape concrete reality to a much greater extent than do the systems of filiation and the abstract matrimonial classes. A kinship system is not a structure, but a practice, a praxis, a method, and even a strategy. Lewis Berth, analyzing a relationship of alliance and hierarchy, shows convincingly that a villain intervenes as a third party to prevent matrimonial connections between elements that the disjunction of two moieties would forbid from the strict viewpoint of structure. 
the third term must be interpreted much more as a method than as a true structural element. Every time one interprets kinship relations in the primitive commune in terms of structure unfolding in the mind, one relapses into an ideology of large segments that make alliance depend on the major affiliations and that finds itself contradicted by practice. It is necessary to ask if there exists in the asymmetrical systems of alliance a fundamental tendency towards generalized exchange, that is to say, towards the closing of the cycle. I have been unable to find anything of that nature among the Mu. Everyone behaves as if he were ignorant of the compensation that would result from the closing of the cycle, and everyone stresses the behavior of asymmetry, emphasizing the creditor-debtor behavior. A kinship system only appears closed to the extent that it is severed from the political and economic references that keep it open, and that make alliance something other than an arrangement of matrimonial classes and filiative lineages. Uh, I'm sure this is going to be a fun one. <laughs> I, I think this is starting to click with me more because, like, right, so you can understand your father in, filial, fil, uh, in filiative terms, right? So, like, your father is above you and you are the child, and there's sort of a hierarchy um, that comes with that, right? So that would be your, your more filiative um, understanding. But when you start talking about an alliance with your father, you're talking about achieving political and economic strategies, right? Which might be accumulating resources together. Um, and even then, like, uh, alliance not necessarily being friendship, but alliance being a mutual grouping for, for some sort of, uh, in this case, strategic reason, as opposed to like a hierarchical structure that is um, simply a way of understanding the society through uh, paternal and maternal relations. So as to understand how, uh, how things like capital or how things like object and production uh, should be sort of following in that sense. I, I, I think, um, I'm, I'm reading this in a different direction, I think. For me, the sentence that jumps out here that helps me piece together the last few paragraphs, and please, everyone, keep typing because it's really important in this section. We get a lot of opinions because I don't think I'm right either. Um, they're talking at, at length that a kinship system is not a structure but a practice. Uh, the last few paragraphs they've talked about uh, – the the way that these systems are set up, kinage, kinship, lineage, uh, through affiliation, through affiliation, uh, basically how how these societies are built. But they've been talking about it very much through the lens of structure uh, and and the structure that we have now. And what they're saying here through the second half of this paragraph is more how I understand it as well that that at the time uh, there was no concept of structure to it; that it was a process. Uh, and I, I'm not sure practice, praxis, method, strategy uh, is all really good translations, but it feels like they're talking about the process of how these societies grew and shifted and changed uh, isn't necessarily a structure as we know it, but instead it's a process that's ongoing that people don't give two thoughts to the closing of the cycle or how the cycle grows and changes but instead uh, that uh, the process of the whole thing is their reality. And uh, Dionysian waves actually, the, the thing that connects in my brain is in A Thousand Plateaus, when they're talking about the rhizomatic structure of society, this feels very spot on to that. So um, what this reminds me of is um, 
uh, Bourdieu in his logic of practice. Um, so he comes up with the idea of habitus. Basically, uh, he he starts wondering, well, where are these structures in society? I mean, you know, what what makes it so that uh, people spontaneously produce these structures in primitive societies? And uh, and so Bourdieu, uh, sorry, uh, Bourdieu uh, comes up with this idea of the habitus as being the um, the basis for the the practice uh, that produces the structure as a side effect. And uh, another uh, book that's really interesting is De Sertu, the practice of everyday life, where he he takes uh, what Bourdieu came up with and tries to extend it and try to understand this uh, the theory of practice a bit better. Well, and and I think in the second half of this paragraph, they talk there. It feels like what they're trying to say is that these things aren't structural in the in the same sense. Uh, when we talk about the body without organs in the modern capitalist sense, as they have in the last few, especially when they're talking about Oedipus, they're talking about deeply about structure and that we fit into these machines and apparatuses and the structure of these machines and apparatuses and how they're built. Whereas it feels like they're saying that there's maybe not a kinship machine is not a possible thing because it's a process that's continually working and not a structure. And the way that it's re- it's looked at was very, very different at the time. It There, there feels like an edge of the noble savage uh, myth uh, playing out throughout this as well. I'm having a difficult time. Uh, I'm having a difficult time with a lot of this and I don't have a lot of background in anthropology, but it, it does feel like a little bit of the noble savage thing happening here. But that's, to me, what they're talking about or trying to say is that the structure of things looked at cynically, that this is the way things have to be because this is the structure of our time, instead is a practice that they were continually in, uh, not to sound too hippie, but it's like, a, oh, in the moments, in the time, here's where we're at, here's what I'm doing, this is what I'm working on, rather than here's the way our society functions. No one really thought about it in that sense. So one thing I, I noticed, and I think this speaks to your point, is when they write some, uh, they write, every time one interprets kinship relations in the primitive commune in terms of a structure unfolding in the mind, one relapses into an ideology of large segments that makes alliance depend on the major affiliations, and it finds itself contradicted by practice. So at one level, like if we're talking about structure as something that exists in the mind and apart from uh, practice, then you, I think you're absolutely right. This is a, a misunderstanding of structure um, in this society. Uh, going on from that, they seem to be trying to point out that these societies actually have a way of um, have a third party, which is the village or the, like a, a larger sort of social collectivity that um, seems to actually respond to these um these filiative and um, alliant relationships where they write, um, if I can find it, Louis Louis Berth analyzing a relationship of alliance and hierarchy shows convincingly that a village intervenes as a third party to permit matrimonial connections between elements that the disjunction of the Tuumatwa would forbid from the stru- strict viewpoint of structure. 
Does anyone have a read on uh, what Muskie's bringing up, which is what is the... So everyone behaves as if he were ignorant of the compensation that would result of the closing of the cycle. Uh, I am absolutely behaving that way because I am ignorant of the compensation that would result from the closing. What what would be the benefit of the closing of the cycle? Well, so the structures, uh, you know, if you think of the Trobriand Islanders uh, trade uh, on a gift basis, um, you know, the structures kind of determine uh, how that flow will go, you know, around between the island, right? But but what he's saying is that people are making uh, pragmatic decisions all the time that contravene the structures, and so and so that's where praxis comes in. And and in fact, that's that's true because what what happens in the Trobrian Island case is that people jockey to be the person who is going to get the gift, right? Because there's a, a there's a lot of um, uh, pride and a lot of, uh, you know, historically the names are associated with the gifts. And so people want to get the gift, but who the person who's giving the gift, they, they are want to give the gift that's going to increase their prestige and their trade. And the person who wants to get the gift, they want to increase their, uh, uh, and they're competing with other people who could get the gift. And so, and so there's all of these pragmatic decisions that are happening in every gift-giving situation that's going to uh, be taken into account. And that's the, pra- the pragmatic thing that, that violates the structure. I, I see where you're coming from, but I think, it's, I think it's the critique of the structure as though it's something only mental, um, which is contradicted by the praxis. It seems to me what they're saying is that the structure is in the praxis, and therefore the structure is not... Um, you know, it's not ideological, it's not purely mental. Um, if you're looking for it, you've got to look at the way they're behaving and what they're actually doing. Yeah, well, I'm just saying that when, when uh, structuralism first came along, they, they, they treated it as if these were a priori structures that are in the unconscious and they just manifest, um, you know, involuntarily. And, and you know, later with like Bourdieu and in this book, they're saying, no, no, there's a practical aspect of the, you know, decisions are made with every interchange. I think you both are kind of right. Uh, so like my whole read on it that I was trying to figure out and, and maybe it'll be valuable to say um, with my voice uh, is um, that they're talking about these structures, because they're not like complete structures, right? They're made out of asymmetries and breaks, right? And so that, because I, I think that's what both of you have brought up, right? That these structures are either a priori parts of the unconscious, or you're a structuralist anthropologist, and you're looking at this economic structure, right? As if it's this, you know, static thing, that's just a part of the society that you can take apart and sort of look at but what they want to talk about is the way that these alliances and kinships are you know sort of like flows right they're 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 or maybe they're not sort of flows they are flows that that it's a movement it's not a complete object it's these it's a network of of you know these sort of hubs where things will flow from one corner of an alliance to another one moiety to another and and then i think that's what they're getting at 
But then that's what raises the question for me. Well, then are they just being ironic when they say, well, no one seems to be aware of what the benefit could bring when you close the cycle, right? Because closing the cycle would seem to make everything static. So that's why, oh, Lou, did you want to say something? I don't think Lou's mic is working. Oh, darn. Well, then I'll briefly reply. Muskie, um, yeah, I, I think I agree with you. What I'm getting at, though, is that it's not that the structure is necessarily a priori. It seems to be that they're talking about the structure as though it's a purely mental thing or something that exists unconsciously or consciously, like you're saying, which is like um, what they're responding to and criticizing, I think. So as to say that the structures, I, I think how I'm reading this is that the structures are in the praxis, right? And so if you want to say structure is in the mental, then that structure is immediately contradicted by what they're doing. And so when they write, um, everyone behaves as if he were ignorant of the compensation that result from the closing of the cycle. And everyone stresses the relationship of asymmetry, emphasizing the creditor-debtor creditor creditor behavior that does still seem to, you know, that emphasis does still seem to speak to a kind of structure who in, in practice is not like the one we're trying, we're, we're used to, which I'm comparing to something more like an ideology. But um, anyways, right, they conclude with a kinship system only appears close to the extent that it is severed from the political and economic references that keep it open. And they make a lie in something other than an arrangement of matrimonial classes and affiliated lineages. It seems to be that, you know, the basic critique there is that um, you can't understand one without the other. Or that is to say, kinship systems only look like they're closing if you ignore the alliance systems or the alliances that are actually keeping them open. That makes a lot of sense. I think I think that was well said. Yes, actually. Thank you for that, Jack. I could be wrong, but that's that's where my interpretation is. And like I said, like there's your father is like your hierarchical uh, patronage, whereby like your inheritance matters. But there's also your father as an administrative, or excuse me, as an alliance, right, where you guys are working to a political or economic end. And at that level, you can see the closed off inheritance versus what you and your father are trying to engage in at almost like a horizontal level. Well, uh, who would like to read the next paragraph, which uh, gets into this actually a little bit more and starts uh, using the wonderful term nomads a lot more? Anyone? Because I will dive in. Uh, no, Alyosha, you're muted. Just unmute yourself. If, if Alyosha can't unmute themselves, I'll volunteer. He's got it. Maybe his mic's not working. That's fine. I'll go ahead and read the next section. Uh, or Jack, if you wanted to, go for it. Uh, real quick, Alyosha, do you want to try your mic? Uh, after you unmute it. Okay, we tried. Um, Sorry, uh, pronouns, my bad. Uh, yes, they seem to be having issues with their mics. Oh, we'll too much today. <laughs> there you go. We'll give them the paragraph to uh, sort it out then. 
It is the same for the whole project of coding the flows. How does one ensure reciprocal adaption, the respective embrace of a signifying chain and flows of production? The great nomad hunter follows the flows, exhausts them in place, and moves on with them to another place. He re reproduces in an accelerated fashion his entire affiliation and contrasts it into a point that keeps him in a direct relationship with the ancestor or the god. Pierre Clastre describes the solitary hunter who becomes identical with his force and his destiny and delivers his song in a language that becomes increasingly rapid and distorted. Me, me, me. I am a powerful nature, a nature incensed and aggressive. Such are the two characteristics of the hunter. The great paranoiac of the bush or the forest, real displacement with the flows and direct affiliation with the god. It has to do with the nature of nomadic space, where the full body of the socius is as if adjacent to production. It has not yet brought production under its sway. The space of the encampment remains adjacent to that of the forest and is constantly reproduced in the process of production, but has not yet appropriated this process. The apparent objective movement of inscription has not suppressed the real movement of nomadism, but a pure nomad does not exist. There is always and already an encampment where it is a matter of stocking, however little, and where it is a matter of inscribing and allocating, of marrying and of feeding oneself. Castre shows well how among the Gyaki, the connection between the hunters and the living animals is succeeded in the encampment by a disjunction between the dead animals and the hunters, a disjunction similar to an incest prohibition since the hunter cannot consume his own kill. In short, as we shall see elsewhere, there is always a pervert who succeeds the paranoiac or accompanies him. Sometimes the same man in two situations, the bush paranoiac and the village pervert. Yeah, sorry, Aloysia, I don't think we can hear you still. It's fine. We'll continue moving on through the uh, paragraph. Um, any quick thoughts over this one? Because I was I was busy trying to fix uh, Alyosha's microphone and chatting with a few people. Uh, um, yeah, so what they were saying about the noble savage thing, um, I think it rings like this is a paragraph where you're going to look at it and you're going to see like, oh, they're sort of, you know, holding up these examples of societies as these sort of uh, idealized, you know, fictional, racist, uh, you know, narratives that, that don't really exist, but they're, um, you know, appropriating them for their purposes. And I think, I think there's a lot to be said about that criticism. Um, uh, I guess at the same time, what's useful is the sort of, I guess, the, what Lou was saying about this being 
less of like these sort of prescriptive like society should look like this or human nature looks like this it's it's it better if you read it like the genealogy of an oedipus so they're sort of describing a series of stages by which we go from you know this fictionalized you know racist sort of caricature that they're working with to oedipus and so that's how we would we we want to like rehabilitate this and i guess in criticism or at least respond to that criticism because it might because it might be a very very serious one for this work yeah i mean i don't know if i'm seeing the noble savage here i see them criticizing a way of I see them both uh, engaging and criticizing a way of understanding these sort of pre-capitalist societies. Um, and in the sense that, like, you know, they're dealing with, uh, and I hope I'm pronouncing his, his name correctly, like here they're dealing with Clastre and the, exa the example of you're either the hunted or the, um, the killed being similar to the idea of you're either the person paranoid of being perverted or you're the pervert. You know, this way that they're they're sort of gesturing toward um, the coming social machine of capitalism, the coming uh, sort of deterritorializing and re-territorializing of this um, of a society. But they're starting out by talking about the way uh, that the, these uh, societies, these villages, it seems, do have a, um, do have these structures that exist in a different manner than ours. Um, living in a capitalist society. Yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, I like that read a lot, but I think where the criticism is going to come in is if you read this paragraph as being like prescriptive, right? Where they're saying like, it's better to be this kind of nomad thing that is maybe, you know, not exactly super realistic, right? And they're sort of appropriating a bunch of different narratives to sort of construct this thing, Uh well, and, and we have to also be careful because, I mean, we did our reading of Clastris, uh early, early on in the collective, and uh, it's it's hard not to read his work, in my mind, as someone who uh, very much considers the noble savage thing to be almost intrinsic to his writing. It's, it's very much throughout everything he writes that they're almost better than us as people, savages that we've lost something, they've gained something. I'm I'm sensitive to the noble savage thing. I worked on Avatar. So like if you want to get like what of the worst kind of noble savage, it's that kind of stuff. So it's um it very much has that same feel. And so when we're reading this chapter and they're talking about uh the Clastris reference they make uh, among the Gayaki, the connection between hunters and living animals is succeeded in the encampment by disjunct. It's even here they're very much talking about it how it's a positive uh, better than us thing. I don't see it. I don't see it as anything else. It's very, very strong in this. I think. Um, I think the difficulty in this chapter will be, and currently is, that what they are doing is they read structuralism and they read it against structuralism, kind of like they did in the last chapter um, with psychoanalysis. And psychoanalysis and structuralism are inseparable. So I think the productive question we need to ask is, how did structuralism, how did the structuralists um, that they cite and that they read um, interpret what 
they cite here, what they quote here, and what make do they do differently than the structuralists? I think a lot of uh, this noble savagery and uh, um, and and the more and, and specifically the language they use here, they um, they inherit from structuralism in in this. Uh, in the section. And I think um, if we look to A Thousand Plateaus, it's very clear that this is not their language because in A Thousand Plateaus, uh, all these things about stages and um, uh, they talk there differently about history. Um, they are very, uh, they are less structuralist there. And I think we need to look for what are the differences between what they do here and what the structuralists they quote did before them to make this productive. I think that's really fair, actually, Lou. Thank you. Um, that's really fair. Um, but, but I mean, a lot of what they're doing here, I almost read as uh, less uh, their direct commentary on pre, uh, I don't know, pre and savage societies uh, and more of uh, them discussing it as uh, as they would in anything else, the difference between us and them, because the the very next paragraph opens with once the socialist becomes fixed, they're trying to describe and talk through a time where there is no fixed socius. There is no set structure to the way things are. So to your point about their discussion around structuralism or not uh, and how they're making, I think it is more commentary than direct. Is that is that kind of what you're saying? with the thing about structure there's also so so um i haven't read too much Deleuze and Gattari outside of what we are doing here but um i know what uh, bruno latour does with this with structure and that's and if that is actually based on what uh, what um um Deleuze and Gattari do here structure just disappears right so this this uh, this is not the kind of structure that Bourdieu even would talk about. In in a sense, I would all even argue that Bourdieu kind of wants to save structuralism for this kind of treatment that Deleuze and Gattari then brought in. Um, I, I'd like to bring up the fact that, you know, with uh, recent archaeological finds, uh, you know, there's, I put up in the, in the chat, you know, there's uh Chateau Hayuk and there's Go, Gobekli Tepe are two architect, uh, arch, archeological finds. The, the first one is nomadic, but it's a place where the nomads, uh, got together. Um, and the, the second one is, uh, agricultural, early agricultural. So, uh, and so by studying these sites, we, we've uh, got a much better um, picture now uh, uh, of some of the things that were going on back then, uh, whereas in early structuralism, uh, you know, there was like no, no evidence, no data. They were just, they were just going on uh, off of what anthropologists were uh, how they were analyzing primitive cultures that uh, existed at that time. Fair. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push for us to keep going because we've got a little bit of, to go before we finish out the section. I want to make sure we get through it. 
let's uh, put a pin in this for tomorrow and make sure that we cover this in the review because um, I think it's I think it's a very interesting discussion and it's going to impact. Uh, I mean, it impacts kind of everything they write about from here out, so it's worth talking through. I'm going to go ahead and read out uh, the next paragraph. Once the socius becomes fixed, falling back on the productive forces and appropriating them for its own, the problem of coding can no longer be resolved by the simultaneity of a displacement from the standpoint of the flows and an accelerated reproduction from the standpoint of the chain. The flows must be the object of deductions that constitute a minimum of stock, and the signifying chain must be the object of detachments that constitute a minimum of mediations. A flow is coded insofar as detachments from the chain and deductions from the flows are affected in correspondence, united in a mutual embrace. And this is already the highly perverse activity of local groups who arrange marriages on the surface of the primitive territoriality. A normal or non-pathological perversity, as Henry A. would say, referring to other cases where a psychic work of selection, refinement, and calculation was manifested. And this is the case from the start. Since there does not exist a pure nomad who can be afforded the satisfaction of drifting within the flows and singing direct filiation, but always a socius waiting to bear down, already deducting and attaching. Uh, Short version, uh, feel free if anyone wants to uh, uh, jump in otherwise. But the short version for me for this paragraph is, uh, and my little notes uh, are, that this is where they're talking about actually how the body without organs operated pre despot in the in the savage times whatever i hate that word so fucking much um the, during this this pre uh, despot time period that the body without organs effectively uh works only almost at the hyper local level inside of these very specific uh, moments when all of these components are coming together that is the structure that is the fix the place that it falls back on pre uh productive forces uh, and that at the grand level, there there really isn't one because of everything being so changing, uh, all the, and shifting all the time. Um, I, I think too. Like, um, do you mean do you mean to say there is no body without organs because everything is shifting it all the time? No, I I I, I mean that the 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 way the socius works, the the place where it's fixed is at the almost hyper local. Uh, when they talk about specifically. Uh, 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 this is already highly perverse activity of a local groups who arrange marriages on the surface of the primitive territoriality. That the the act of arranging marriages is effectively where this uh, uh, socius body without organs, whatever it may be, the the socius uh, actually operates and falls back on things. The way the 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 genealogy of it all. Pardon me. Yeah, I think I do. I do like the emphasis on the genealogy of it because it, it seems to be a lot of what's going on here. Um, I'll just say too. Um, I like the sentence: "A flow is coded insofar as detachments from the chain and deductions from the flow are affected in correspondence, united in a mutual embrace." I think that's a really interesting uh, description of uh, codifying flows. All right, uh, and we'll go ahead and read the next paragraph, and then we will we have uh, just two pages to get through, just a couple pages, but it's a lot. 
So let's see what we can do. Um, the flow deductions constitute affiliative stock in the signifying chain, but inversely, the detachments from the chain constitute mobile debts of alliance that guide and direct the flows. On the blanket that serves as a familial stock, affinial stones or cowries are made to circulate. There is a sort of vast cycle of flows of production and chains of inscription and a lesser cycle between the stock's affiliation and connect and encast the flows and the blocks of alliance that cause the chains to flow. Descent is at the same time flow of production and chain of inscription, stock affiliation and fluxion of alliance. Everything takes place as though the stock constituted a surface energy of inscriptions or recording, the potential energy of the apparent movement. But debt is the actual direction of this movement, a kinetic energy that is determined by the respective paths of the gifts and counter-gifts on the surface. Among the Kula, the circulation of necklaces and bracelets comes to a standstill in certain places, on certain occasions, so that stock may be reformed. There are no productive connections without disjunctions affiliation that appropriate them. But there are no disjunctions affiliation that do not reconstitute lateral connections across the alliances and pairings of persons. Not only the flows and the chains, but the fixed stocks and the mobile debts, insofar as they in turn imply relations between chains and flows in both directions, are in a state of perpetual relativity. Their elements vary. Women, consumer goods, ritual objects, rights, prestige, and status. They're talking about the early versions of um, flows of the marketplace. Yeah, and certainly of dead and private property, right? Because mm -hmm. if I remember correctly, in the last section, they were talking about, you know, the, the social machine of capitalism dealing with um, the abstractions of privatization and of... Um, Oh gosh, what was it? Of um, private property and oh, does anybody ever remember the second one? Nope. Uh, well, you're remembering that the 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 when they talk about debts, what they mean is debts in a gift giving society, not not the kind of way we think about debts. Uh, you know. Uh, if you're given something, then uh, then the question is, when are you going to reciprocate? Do you reciprocate immediately? Do you re reciprocate after a, after a certain time? If you don't reciprocate at all, what are the implications of that for the sustained relationship? I think that's what they mean by debt. Yeah, I agree with you. And that's the alliance of it, right? But also the, like, um, we could get into the philatelic affiliative side with it as well. Um, just want to mention it's privatization and abstraction. That was the other one. You know, so quite quite clearly here, you know, they're they're taking the Trobrian Island case, you know, as a kind of uh, exemplary because it has these two flows in opposite directions. Yeah, I thought the, the sentence that stuck out to me was there are no productive connections without disjunctions of affiliation that appropriate them. But there are no disjunctions of affiliation that do not reconstitute lateral connections across the alliances and pairings of persons. 
this seems to be what we were saying too about like you know even in um a gift giving um economy dealing with um uh debt and credit that way there's still a way that yes there's stuff that moves um upwards and downwards administratively and hierarchical and affiliative sense but there's no um there's no either or the affiliative uh, th- therefore, the hierarchical or the um, administrative that does not reconstitute the the lateral or like the sort of like horizontal connections across the alliances and pairings of persons. Yeah. So, so the th- the thing that um, so if you've got these two cycles of gifts of different kinds that go, you know, one's the dominant gift, which are really important gifts that are going in one direction, and then the the lesser gifts are going in the opposite direction. And you can see how that how that works because it creates these trade cycles between the islands so that you can take a gift to the uh, to the island in the clockwise uh, uh, direction, but then you can follow the gift back in the counterclockwise direction. But those two cycles have an interaction with each other, which is this quasi-cause. And I think that's, that's the kind of key point that they're trying to get at is that that's where you see the quasi causes in the in the interaction between these two cycles. Well, so I one question I have um, uh, in in the middle of this paragraph, they have the sentence: uh, "Descent is at the same time flow of production and chain of inscription." Blah 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 blah. Uh, descent uh, could that be interchanged here for lineage? And they're talking about uh, that. Because that seems to be how they've been using descent is such a terrible word in an English context for this, but it looks like they're talking about lineage here and descendants, not so much like I descend from my grandfather, my great grandfather, and things like that. Descent is just such an awkward word for it. Is lineage better here? Uh, yeah, they're talking about lineage for sure. Okay, making sure because descent is a terrible so, word. So you got to remember. In the okay, I don't know whether the Trobrian Islanders are uh, matrilineal or patrilineal, but but the but the point is that one of the things which is flowing around these cycles is uh, women who are being traded in marriage. If it's if it's patriarchal, um, if it's not patriarchal, the women are staying at home with their fathers. But if it's if it's uh, is if it's patriarchal, the women are actually flowing around like the guests. Well, and and there are examples of even matriarchal societies that have uh, not arranged marriages in the way that uh, the father selects the bride, but that the 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 lineage is almost chosen by everyone that these families will get married, and that by doing so, you know, the this land will transfer over, and it's a contractual agreement more than anything. And so, a lot of this chapter is talking about again pre despot society that the focus is is on this descend the descent the lineage and how the lineage transfers back and forth how this is ultimately what is inscribed on the socius is that fair fair? and and with that like the economics of it the resources the partial objects the you know all the things um, that are there that can be taken stock of And actually, Gigi Pal brings up the reason I was asking is because uh, dissent, fucking awful word. Uh, don't ever use that, translators, if anyone's listening. Um, 
I know we have a few that come in. Um, my question is, is this lineage or is this inheritance? Because lineage focuses uh, conceptually as a word on the way families are structured, mothers related to children, which seems to be what they were talking about earlier when they were saying uh, how uh, filial lines and alliances work. And from my understanding of the Trobrian people and what I've read on uh, the Kula, this feels like the focus. However, if the word descent here is about material goods that are part of that, and we're talking about inheritance, that is a drastically different uh, implication when we're talking about the transition towards the despotic time. So I think it's important, too, to keep in mind we're talking about territorialization, right? In the same way that the clock can be viewed as a, um, as a, a simple technical machine or a social machine, right? It can tell you time. Or it can be telling you, it can be a reminder of your your place in the um, the system of a nine to five and larger capitalist social system, or um, you know referring to that social uh, machine of capitalism. I think in the same way, you can read descent there, uh, and, and I'm kind of taking it as appropriate because I read it like a, a flow descends through a hierarchy. So in that way. You know, there's, and I think that's why the ego was important earlier is like, do we get the ego as it descends from your parents? And it seems like the answer to that is no. But in the same way, right, um, descent being like, yes, lineage for sure, but also the things that come with it. For instance, like, um, you know, in our society today, when you die, uh, when you're, say, when your father dies, and I, I recently experienced this um, with a friend. Uh, you've got to sell all of his stuff because you've inherited it. And so my friend is trying to deal with that. Um, you know, people leave behind things. People also give you things um, at a level of simple, like, uh, administrative function, right? I might give my son uh, a crook so he can do his job of sheep keeping or whatever. Um, we're, we've got a lot to discuss tomorrow is the short version um, I'm going to go ahead and continue on with the next uh, paragraph uh, if one postulates that somewhere there has to be a kind of equilibrium of prices one is compelled to see the manifest disequilibrium of the relations a pathological consequence which one explains by saying that the supposedly closed system extends in one direction and opens as the press the prestations become wider and more complex. But such a conception is in contradiction with the primitive cold economy, which is without net investment, without money or market, and without exchangist commodity, commodity relations. The mainspring, mainspring of such an economy is a veritable surplus value of code. Each detachment from the chain, each detachment from the chain produces on the one side or the other in the flows of production, phenomena of excess and deficiency, phenomena of lack and accumulation, which will be compensated for by the non-exchangeable elements of the acquired prestige or distributed consumption type. Um, in quotes, the chief converts this perishable wealth into imperishable prestige through the medium of spectacular feasting. The ultimate consumers are in a way the original producers. Surplus value of code is the primitive form of surplus value, inasmuch as it corresponds to Mouse's celebrated formula. 
the spirit of a thing given, or the force of circumstance that requires that gifts be reciprocated with interest, being territorial signs of desire and power, and principles of abundance and the fructification of wealth. Far from being a pathological consequence, the disequilibrium is functional and fundamental. Far from, an extension, far from being the extension of a system that is at first closed, the opening is primary, founded in the heterogeneity of the elements that compose the, the prestations and that compensate for the disequilibrium by displacing it. All right. In short, the detachments from the signifying chain in accordance with the relations of alliance engender surplus values of code at the level of the flows. Once are derived differences in status between filiative lines, for example, superior or inferior ranks of the givers and receivers of wives. The surplus value of code carries out the diverse operations of the primitive territorial machine, detaching segments from the chain, organizing selections from the flows, and allocating the portions to each person. Despite the difficult language, I actually understood that paragraph, I think. I actually think I understood that paragraph. Uh, Give me a minute to any, anyone have thought before we move on, because I'm going to. Well, I, I think the surplus value of code is the idea that, uh, you know, that that in these primitive societies, both the language and these kinship structures are very complex. And so the complexity of categories and and uh, and different kinds of distinctions that are in the kinship um, system um it is you know they're like overcoded in some sense that there there's a lot more coding there than is necessary just for for reproductive means okay so i think i think that makes sense because i think what i'm reading this section is like is like this is their sort of them advancing the way that they take all of this data from anthropology from structuralist anthropology in the way that that they interpret it and so, yeah, it's not just about reproduction of the family. That's the closed system that becomes open in a marketplace, right? It's for them, it's these signifying chains break apart. And that's sort of the fundamental nature of, I don't know, struck, uh, it's struck. Okay. Words are the, the fundamental process. The fundamental process that the, that Socius is going through is the actual creation of signifiers that actually have an excess of value within their own uh, within their own sort of existence. That the food itself at no point is commodified. At no point, uh, the example they use, I love, and it really helped it click in my brain. When uh, you you have food, everyone just has food. That's great. Food's a food. But if the chief, the chief exists to give that excess power, suddenly the food is no longer just food. We're having a feast. And the feast is in honor of Alyosha finally getting his microphone working. And that celebration that we get to have makes that food and that celebration more than just the sum of its parts at a basic level. It's the surplus value of itself. You are called out deeply. And we will have a feast over that too and just continue. Basically, it's continuing to create surplus value inside of each of the coded items. And that's the coding that happens uh, inside of the, the sort of prehistorical uh, uh, setups. I think, I think what, what's interesting here is that their innovation is to say that the, the code can be surplus or deficient. And so it'll be interesting to see if that's what they're going to say is that in the primitive, 
the code is in a surplus. In other words, there's a lot of coding going on uh, that's unnecessary in the primitive. And then uh, in the in the capitalist, there's 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 this deterritorialization, which is an undercoding in a substance. So it'll be interesting to see if the if if maybe they say that the in the uh, in the sovereign case that that's a, a kind of middle between those excess and uh, deficiency. Well, and they also go into, and I think another thing that's clicking for me is their previous use in this section of the word asymmetry and uh, unbalanced and all of that over and over. Because, uh, and again, the examples that they give of these tribes and how they react, um, for example, in uh, my world now, a book is worth X number of dollars, and we have a very, very specific evenness to the way coded flows work. Everything is very much evenness in some theoretical sense, at least at a coding level. But then in these prehistorical societies, their reference to things being over or undervalued based on the code, uh, the coding that's happening, feels like it's intentional and everyone's aware of it and no one wants to close it out and try to make everything even. Instead, they want to talk about the excess and deficiency as being uh, part and parcel uh, of, of all of their sort of uh, interactions at a societal level? Yeah, one thing that comes to mind to me um, is like economics will say this all works through an equilibrium of price and quantity, and that's your that's your basic market, right? But I think, Brooks, you're right um, about what you're saying, and the reason I bring up the equilibrium is because this society functions by displacing disequilibrium. So this is not about trying to like, it's not about holding on to a book so it appreciates through the market and you can, right, and the equilibrium of price over time either raises or drops. This is about um, displacing the fundamental uh, disequilibrium in the system that there's always, um, that there isn't that relationship of price and quantity whereby we can understand the society through that lens. Yes, uh, and I'm probably going to use the term prehistorical instead of savage just because it hurts me to say it less. It may not be completely accurate. I'm trying to say pre-despotic, but I will continue to use the term. It's pr probably a Freudian slip, though. That's fair. Um, I'm going to go ahead and continue reading and keep pushing us on because I think um, it's worth us getting through a little bit more here. The idea that primitive societies have no history, well, son of a bitch the next fucking line of course uh that they are dominated by archetypes and their repetition is especially weak and inadequate they, they literally called me out on what i was doing just now that's great all right i'll stop saying that term uh this idea was not conceived by ethnologists but by ideologists in the service of a tragic judeo-christian consciousness that they wish to credit with the invention of history if what is called history is a dynamic and open social reality in a state of functional disequilibrium or an oscillating equilibrium, unstable and always compensated, comprising not only institutionalized conflicts, but conflicts that generate changes, revolts, ruptures, and scissions, then primitive societies are fully inside history and far distant from the stability or even from the harmony attributed to them in the name of a primacy of a unanimous group. The presence of history in every social machine plainly appears in the disharmonies that, as Levi Strauss says, bear the unmistakable stamp of time elapsed. 
It is true that there are several ways to interpret such disharmonies, ideally by the gap between the real institution and the assumed ideal model, morally by invoking a structural bond between law and transgression, physically as though it were a question of attrition that would cause the social machine to lose its capacity to wield its materials. But here too, it seems that the correct interpretation would be, above all, factual and functional. It is in order to function that a social machine must not function well. This has been shown precisely with regard to the segmentary system, which is always destined to reconstitute itself on its own ruins, and likewise for the organization of the political function of, in these systems, which in effect is exercised only by the indicating its own impotence. Ethnologists are constantly saying that kinship rules are neither applied nor applicable to real marriages, not because these rules are ideal, but rather they determine critical points where the apparatus starts up again, provided it is blocked, and where it necessarily places itself in a negative relation to the group. Here it becomes apparent that the social machine is identical with the desiring machine. The social machine's limit is not attrition, but rather its misfirings. It can operate only by fits and starts, by grinding and breaking down in spasms of minor explosions. The dysfunctions are an essential element of its very ability to function, which is not the least important aspect of the system of cruelty. The death of a social machine has never been heralded by a disharmony or a dysfunction. On the contrary, social machines make a habit of feeding on the contradictions they give rise to, on the crises they provoke, on the anxieties they engender, and on the infernal operations they regenerate. Capitalism has learned this and has ceased doubting itself. Well, even socialists have abandoned belief in the possibility of capitalism's natural death by attrition. No one has ever died from contradictions. And the more it breaks down, the more it schizophrenizes. The better it works, the American way. <laughs> well, that last part's a great bumper sticker for sure. Yeah, it's really awesome how the part where they stop doing these like incredibly lengthy quotes of obscure anthropology is like actually fun to read and, and easy to understand. <laughs> Uh, any comments on this paragraph? Um, it's 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 one of the, sometimes they hit moments of clarity for me, so I don't have a ton to add very specifically. Yeah, it, it seems pretty clear that paragraph. Um, but just to talk over again, the concept of I mean, it opens up with them talking about how they're not prehistorical. So I'm an asshole. That's what I learned. Uh, but um, they they're. They're talking about the creation of social machines inside of societies and how social machines work and how they always have that there's no one of the things that was interesting in this the as i've read it is when they talk about uh social machines over time there is no difference in the social machines pre-despot despot and capitalist that they're talking almost how uh in the 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 response to them or how uh, the socius handles social machines is what changes, that the social machines themselves constantly are there, they're constantly breaking down, and that in the pre-despot or in despotic times, they didn't trust in the social machine. They were very terrified of them breaking down, and so they kept uh, them going. And that's, I think, they're talking about uh, the asymmetric nature of uh, giving and arranged marriages and filial relations. Uh, being asymmetric, but no one wanting to close that loop. Whereas now we live in a time where that's all people want to do is close that fucking loop and get the benefits. Give me the benefits. I'll break whatever machine I can. I'll break everything down. And that breakdown is what's continually happening now. 
I really like this uh, paragraph. It gets it, it gets it through. This uh, statement, no one ever died from contradictions. So, so Graham Priest, who's a logician, he has this position called dial, dialotheism, where where he he says that you know uh, you can have local contradictions, uh, and, and there's this problem of explosion, where you know if you have contradictions in a logical argument, you can prove anything, but but um, but it's a different thing. Uh, to have real contradiction. And so real contradictions, uh, I think, is what they're alluding to here. But they're saying that even in the face of real contradictions, it's not something, it might cause psychological problems if you're in a double bind or something like that. But, uh, but you know, you don't die of them. No, in fact, it's the opposite. The more it breaks down, the more it schizophrenizes, and the better it works uh, the American way. Uh, how do people get accelerationism from Deleuze? Always fascinating. But um, I do like that. I do like this last paragraph. I'm going to mark up a few notes for us to make sure we talk about things tomorrow as well. Um, would anyone like to read the next paragraph? Because we're starting to near the end of the section, thankfully. I'm happy to read it, though. If anyone. I can read it. Bigum, please. Okay, but this is already the point of view required. In a change of perspective for examining the primitive socius, the territorial machine for declining alliances and affiliations. This machine is segmentary because, through its double apparatus of tribe and lineage, it casts up segments of varying lengths. Theological affiliated units of major, minor, and minimal lineages with their hierarchy, their respective chefs, their elders who guard the stocks and organize marriages, territorial tribal units of primary, secondary, and tertiary sections, also having their dominant roles and their alliances. The point of separation between the tribal selections becomes the point of divergence in the clan structure of the lineages associated with each section. Or, as we have seen, clans and their lineages are not distinct corporate groups but are embodied in the local communities through which they function structurally. Two systems intersect, each segment being associated with the flows and the chains, with the stock flows and the passing flows, with selections from the flows and detachments from the chains. Because certain production projects are executed in the framework of the tribal systems, others in the framework of the lineage system. Variability and relativity of the segments are responsible for all sorts of penetrations between the inalienable elements of affiliation and the mobile elements of alliance. This is explained by the fact that the length of each segment, or even its existence as such, is determined only by its opposition to other segments in a series of interrelated stages. Commentary machine mixed rivalries, conflicts and ruptures throughout the variations of affiliation, the fluctuations of alliance. The whole system evolves between two poles, of fusion through opposition to other groups, and that of scission through the constant formation of new lineages aspiring to independence, the capitalization of alliances and affiliation. From one pole to the other, all the misfirings and failures in a system that is constantly reborn of its own disharmonies. What does Jean Farad mean when she shows, along with other ethnologists, that the persistence of a segmentary organization requires, paradoxically, that its mechanisms be ineffectual enough that fear remains the motor of the whole? What is this fear? It would appear that social formations experience the morbid and mournful foreboding of things to come, although what comes to them always comes from without, rushing in through their opening. 
Perhaps it is even for this reason that it arises from without. Suffocate its inner potentiality at the cost of the dysfunctions that constitute an integral part of the functioning of their system. Thank you for reading. It's, uh, I'm, 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 there are parts of this that confuse me and some parts that I really, really like some of the lines. So I'm going to want to take a few minutes. We're going to extend a little bit over the two-hour mark, just letting everyone know, uh, because we are going to finish this section. I'm not going to let one more paragraph kick our ass. But um, the machine is segmentary because though it's double apparatus of tribe and lineage, it cuts up segments of varying lengths, genealogical filiative units of major, minor, and minimal lineages with their hierarchy. Um, can someone give me a... Another way of saying what they're trying to say with that, just that little section there, because it feels like as they talk about um, the territorial machine for declining alliances and affiliations as things move through time, the separations, the two poles, the way that these things move into capital and become part of the despotic, it, this feels like it, they're describing it can't be, I know I'm interpreting it wrong, a gradualist view of the descent into despotism. Please give me another way of looking at this paragraph. I would love it. Anyone? Well, I don't know about that, but one of the things that I'd like to mention is the is this is this is kind of like the baseline situation of the primitive. But um, so in Indo-European societies, there's also caste, and caste is is kind of like if you took this system and you created multiple levels of systems like this. Uh, that had discontinuities between them. And so I, I just wonder if they're going to get into caste systems. So I think I can take a crack at explaining it because I don't think it's, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by the word gradualist, um, but I think the way I'm looking at it is that this is. Really quick to say why. When, when they're talking and they say things like, the segmentary machine goes on to do this, and then it evolves into this. And they use the term, Kraut, uh, they actually use the term evolves, moves from one pole to another. Uh, uh, the whole system evolves between two poles, that effusion through opposition to other groups and the scission through the constant formation of new lineages aspiring to independence. Uh, and, and gradualism may be the wrong word here, but it feels like they're talking about this. This is where this slow change happens over time. Uh, it doesn't feel like that's right, and my brain can't wrap another direction. So that's why that's where my brain is reading that, though. Okay, yeah, I, I see where you're coming from. Um, but I think instead of reading it like that, the way I'm getting it is that they're describing, they're not describing the movement from, you know, this sort of uh, the territorial machine in this stage of history to a despotic stage of history in that section and where so much as they're just describing this one stage of history and what they're getting at is the way that this stage of history has the elements that are going to you know through the rupture right the sort of next genealogical shift are going to become the parts of the despotic machine um there's another thing which is the um you know, evolutionary theory is the mutations that cause it to uh, to advance, according to you know Darwinian theory, and so um, and so the, the, these breakdowns, uh, you know, could at the in the kinship level could be like the mutations in uh, in evolution. 
Oh, and then there's the last sentence. Uh, perhaps it is even for this reason that it arrives from without. They suffocate its inner potentiality at the cost of the dysfunctions that constitute an integral part of the functioning of their system. Um, this whole section is about the, the building on the last paragraph, which talks about essentially the social machine's limits and how it's constantly breaking down, how it will break down, and br the breakdown moments are the moments of production. Uh, but in those breakdowns used to be considered, uh, used to be in this predespotic time. Uh, those breakdowns were almost uh, expected, and they would uh, almost be taken over due to the size of the signs, uh, the overcoding, the over. Is that the is that the term I should be looking for? The over assumption in the value, the value coding. And so now they're talking about here, the way that these segments grow and change over time and continually break down also comes with a side of fear and the fear of what happens if they don't uh, obey that, they don't listen to that. I, okay. I read that differently. I see where you're coming from. So like the, you're talking about that sort of, uh, that nomadic subject that they're describing, right? Where you go yeah. from place to place and you exhaust the flows from at each place. And that's sort of more... There's a way that they are like positioning that like it's more rational, it's more proper, maybe. It, uh, it feels like that's what they're saying, but again, I don't. I, as I'm reading it, I'm like, that can't be the way. That's just my how my brain's hearing it for some reason. Yeah, I, I hear that too, and I, I struggle with that a little bit myself. But I think what they're saying in this section is they're describing this sort of, I guess, tribal society, and and that the opening that they're talking about is that sort of. It's, they're talking about this like inherent in the structure like everyone knows that these like family units aren't these closed off sealed units and that the tribal unit isn't this like closed off separate thing right that comes once the family unit opens everyone knows subconsciously because of the way the nature of desiring production and the nature of partial objects that these signifying chains are made by being broken and recreated and that's the opening that they're afraid that something is going to get into, I think. So another thing that's worth keeping in mind is um, Jack Monod. He wrote a book called Chance and Necessity, which was supposedly a, uh, you know, a model of um, Darwinian uh, evolution, but uh, turned out to be a, a really good uh, uh, kind of abstract model for basing understanding structuralism on, and uh, and and he differentiates uh, teleonomy from teleology, and so basically what he says is that one of these systems they have uh, random levels and then they have uh, selected levels that are determinate, and there's there's multiple levels like you'll have one level that's random, then one level that's uh, determinate than a random than determinate, and and as those levels keep getting applied, uh, then rather than having a teleology where you know where you're going from the beginning, you have what's called a teleonomy, which means that you're going to arrive at a, a a particular end, but you're not going to know what that end is before you uh, set out, and so that's a, a model of openness 
in something like evolution or in something like the changes in 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 kinship system through uh, through the, the mutations or these uh, breakdowns. I think that's very relevant with where they're going with capitalism, right? Because they aren't saying. I don't think they're saying it's a teleology where this is a progression towards something, but they're saying that capitalism is this sort of nightmare that haunts all these other societies because it is where their flows start to get decoded. And that sort of sign change breaking proliferates more than it has in previous societies. And that, that I'm not sure if they would say it was inevitable, but that is, I think where they're, we're going with the universal history bit. And I think a lot of when they're talking about the chains breaking and the, the signs breaking and, you know, the machines breaking in this society, in this uh, pre-despotic time, it's uh, they talk a lot about how it's very much built into the way that they handle everything, uh, that, that that asymmetry that uh, one has a surplus, one has a less, one has less. That setup is basically uh, the entire plan there, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so, so in, and I mean, they're they're gonna. I think they're gonna get into it in even the next paragraph. But uh, the difference over time, as these machines break, and how that's treated, and that the breaking becomes literal production itself, and through the breaking, as they say in that last, I just love that. And the more it breaks down, the more it schizophrenizes, the better it works. The American way is such a sarcastic, shitty way to say it, but it's such a uh, bumper sticker view of their of what they're trying to say here. I think. Yeah, it would be inherent in the society because it's imminent in the in the subconscious stuff that yes. they were talking about. Yes. Yeah. Okay, starting to understand more. We'll discuss more tomorrow. I want to make sure we get through the last uh, paragraph here. Um, I'll go ahead and give that a read. Uh, the segmentary territorial machine makes use of scission to exercise fusion and impedes the concentration of power by maintaining the organs of chieftainry in a relationship of impotence within the group. As though the savages themselves sensed the rise of the imperial barbarian, who will come nonetheless from without and will overcode all their codes. But the greatest danger would be yet another dispersion, a scission such that all the possibilities of coding would be suppressed. Decoded flows, flowing on blind, mute, deterritorialized socius. Such is the nightmare that the primitive social machine exercises with all its forces and all its segmentary articulations. The primitive machine is not ignorant of exchange, commerce, and industry. It exorcises them, localizes them, cordons them off, and casts them, and maintains the merchant and the blacksmith in a subordinate position, so that the flows of exchange and the flows of production do not manage to break the codes in favor of their abstract or fictional quantities. And isn't that also what Oedipus, the fear of incest, is about? The fear of a decoded flow? If capitalism is the universal truth, it is so in the sense that makes capitalism the negative of all social formations. It is the thing, the unnameable, the generalized decoding of flows that reveal a contrario, the secret of all formations, coding the flows and even overcoding them rather than letting anything escape coding. Primitive societies are not outside history. Rather, it is capitalism that is at the end of history. It is capitalism that results from a long history of contingencies and accents, accidents, and that brings on this end. It cannot be said that the previous formations did not foresee this thing that only came from without by rising from within, and that all costs had to be prevented from rising. Whence the possibility 
of a retrospective reading of all history in terms of capitalism. It is already possible to see signs of classes in pre-capitalist societies, but ethnologists observe how difficult it is to distinguish those proto-classes from the castes organized by the imperial machine and from the rankings distributed by the segmentary primitive machine. The criteria that distinguishes classes, castes, and ranks must not be sought in a fixity or a permeability, nor in a relative closing or opening. These criteria always reveal themselves to be deceptive, eminently misleading. But the ranks are inseparable from the primitive territorial coding process, just as castes are inseparable from the overcoding practiced by the imperial state. While classes are relative to the process of an industrial and commodity production decoded under the conditions of capitalism, all history can therefore be read under the sign of classes, but by observing the rules set forth by Marx and bearing in mind that classes are the negative of castes and ranks. For it is certain that the regime of decoding does not signify the absence of organization, but rather the most somber organization, the harshest, harshest compatibility, with the axiomatic replacing the codes and incorporating them, always a contrario. I don't have anything to add to that. But actually, uh, I mean, we were going back and forth a bit musky, but it seems like that actually explained what I was talking about better than I could. I like yeah. that. Yeah, very clear paragraph for me, too. I, I really liked the language. I thought it was very well written. Any uh, final thoughts? Well, so they did get to casts. They're saying that casts are the uh, the despotic machine imposes caste. It's true. Um, but really talking about ultimately the, the need for everything to be territorialized and coded because the decoded flows is the terrifying. Deterritorialized socials. Yeah. So I just like to mention Duma Zeal. You know, he was the one who kind of like figured out uh, how the caste structure was in all the different Indo-European societies. And uh, Deleuze refers to him on occasion. Any other final thoughts before we move on to uh, closing out? All right, fair enough. Uh, thank all of you again for joining us today. Uh, we will try to be getting this up uh, for audio this evening with any luck. Uh, and tomorrow, please join us for review because we will be going over a bunch of different little points and we have a lot more people who join us then. Um, thank all of you for everything and uh, we look forward to hearing from you next week. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm.